So it was 1999 and I had one thing on my mind, Beanie Babies. Now, if you're not a 90s kid or a parent of a 90s kid, you might not actually know what a beanie baby is, but they're small stuffed animals filled with beans, and they're different animals, lots of different bears, lots of different colors, but they each have that hallmark of a small uh, heart with a T-Y on it, and it has a tag on its ear. It was all the rage in the 90s. Now, uh, I went to summer camp, and... I think that the number of Beanie Babies that you had increased the level of popularity that you had. And I, my friends, did not have a single Beanie Baby to my name. Now, I went to summer camp every single year. Um, I loved it, but also my parents were both working. And so that was something that we both needed to be doing so that we could each have our own sanity. Um, And I had solidified myself at the regular school year just as a regular normal kid. Nothing too popular, nothing too unpopular, just a regular normal kid. So camp, summer camp specifically, was a chance for me to be a new self, to reinvent myself. Now, I didn't have a lot of style, and I attributed all of that and all of my middle school worries into the fact that I was unpopular because of that. Most of summer camp was playing capture the flag and having fun with one another and making dances up to the Spice Girls. But um, I got to this particular summer camp, which was a Christian camp. And it wasn't on the campus of my church, but it was the campus of another church. Now, are churches supposed to have rivals like schools? Well, if my church had one, it would have been this church. So I met up with this group of girls and they were like, oh yeah, well, we go to Rolling Hills Covenant Church and you go to what church? St. Peter's by the Sea Presbyterian Church. Sounds quaint. They didn't actually say that because they're in fifth grade, but it sure felt that way. But all I knew was that these girls were cool and I was already wearing really high socks and they were totally into the no-show socks. And everybody had a beanie baby. So after that first day, I went home and I begged my mom, I've got to go get a beanie baby. My mom had already planned on having one, but my birthday was in October. And so she was going to give it to me then, but I begged and I pleaded. So we went to the store to go get a beanie baby. It was June. They were all out of beanie babies except for one kind. It was a happy Father's Day beanie baby straight with a plaid tie. It was cute. I was 10. I didn't know any better. Usually Beanie Babies are supposed to have things like cool polka dots or tie-dye and sometimes bears or you can even have one of your favorite mascots. The only one left was the Happy Father's Day Beanie Baby. I brought my Beanie Baby to camp and everyone noticed it, which was great, but they started calling it the Professor because of its tie. Needless to say, I wasn't super popular at summer camp either. Now, years went by, summer camp after summer camp, middle school, high school. I always had best intentions of reinventing myself and becoming the new me. As outgoing and friendly as I possibly could be, I never became the popular kid. I never got it. I never figured out the script to become one. 
Well, it was the end of my senior year and I was at home and getting ready for college and trying to put away some of the things that were of my old self and trying to be more of an adult. And I found the professor, the beanie baby. He was so sophisticated. Maybe he had a degree, maybe even a master's. Did other beanie babies at that summer camp even have one of those? Maybe my beanie baby was the best after all. I went on to lots of new activities and new jobs, and I stopped putting so much pressure on myself to be the popular kid. And then I realized, somewhere after a little bit of adolescence, that humans spend a lot of time figuring out how to exclude and creating groups that they belong to and others don't belong to. Exclusion and inclusion became a theme of adulthood And it became even more uncomfortable to realize when that was happening and when it wasn't happening. In our scripture passage for today, we are exploring not only what it means to belong to God, but also who belongs to God. And I think you'll be surprised by the answer. Would you read along with me from Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 11? The word of the Lord for you. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer is for God is to, to, sorry, prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I can testify that they have a zeal for God, but it is not enlightened for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own. They have not submitted to God's righteousness For Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes concerning the righteousness that comes from the law, that the person who does these things will live by them. But righteousness that comes from faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who descends to the abyss, that is, to say, who brings Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near to you on your lips and on your heart. That, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with the heart and so is justified. And one confesses with the mouth and so is saved. So who belongs to God? Maybe more people than we thought. As you might remember, the early church was divided between Jewish Christians, who were people that were of Jewish heritage, who found Jesus and decided to follow Jesus and became Christian. Then there were also Gentile Christians who were people who were not of Jewish descent, who became Christian. Paul's desire and intent in his writing of the book of Romans is to unify these two types of Christians. Because just as identity and nationality and religion divide us here and now in 2020, they also did back then. Israel at that present time based their covenant relationship with God on their performance and all of the commands of the Torah, the law. And if you followed the law, just like that, you were right in God's eyes. It was a fairly simple equation. 
though following the law was actually fairly difficult to complete. And so sadly, Israel didn't recognize that God had, what God had done through Jesus to create this new covenant family on the basis of faith. But why the tension though? Jewish Christian, Gentile Christian, aren't they all Christian in the end? Well, I liken it to this. Do you think the members of the elite Equinox gym would really be excited about becoming the YMCA all of a sudden? I think not. It begs the question, how do you get to be part of this family? Well, by heritage? Is it by obeying all of the rules? Or is there some side door way? Well, when you call it a side door way, it kind of sounds like you're cheapening Jesus's love. And what was done on the cross is somehow less. Paul says that the law was given for us to obey. It was a way for Jews to be in constant connection with God. It was a way to get God's people ready for God's Messiah. And Moses says that living by the law code, it's not easy. And for those of you who might have read it, there's 613 laws in the Old Testament. and Every detail is regulated to a fine point. But God gave us Jesus. And instead of trusting in the law to shape our right living, why not just trust in God? If Jesus lives through you, your tongue will speak well, your heart will love well, and your mind will be sharp. In our passage today, Paul is commentating on the Jesus that we read about. In the Gospels, Jesus is healing and teaching and feeding throughout the countryside. Geographically makes a turn for the surprise as he moves decisively into Gentile territory. Particularly the Gospel of Matthew, where the overall storyline, the saving, healing, and liberating work of God expands from Jewish circles to Gentile circles. And Paul points to this as a major pivot point by Jesus and God's larger narrative. God's love is scandalous. God's love is widening and God's love is inclusive. Well then, who is in this circle, small or large? And what does it exactly mean to belong? And why is there so much tension in the reconciling who is loved by God? What is it our business anyway? Well, we're the ones who are humans and we're the ones who are creating divisions instead of unity. The characteristic mark of God's love is that it is always opening. It is always surprising. And it's found to be scandalizing, even with its ever unfolding breath of generosity. And this begs the question, whether we admit it to ourselves or not, who do we fail to include in our working understanding of God's grace? Who do we treat as outsiders of this circle? And who have we closed it off to? We as humans spend a lot of time creating these divisions and drawing lines and including and excluding others. And in the middle of a pandemic, an impending election on the horizon, conflicting news stories, 
It's no doubt that tensions are rising. And what is our core belief about religion? About our values, about our traditions, and what is important? Who is important? And in what ways do we too need to hear Paul's challenge of the liberating, reconciling words of Christ? That these divisions that we create of human origin, we can get beyond that and recognize that God's love is uniting beyond all those things. God has done the work of raising Jesus from the dead. What would the world look like if we operated out of this trust that God won't give up on God's covenant people? And what would it look like if we realized that we are all part of God's family and operated in the unity that is that? Amen and amen.